How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. When we think about how artificial intelligence works, we often make comparisons to the human brain. Terms like neural networks seem to cement this connection. But how much do computer models and the human brain have in common, especially when it comes to processing language? Dr. Alana Fish is an assistant professor in the Departments of Computing Science and Psychology at the University of Alberta. She is a fellow of the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute and holds a CIFAR AI chair. Her research interests combine computational linguistics, machine learning, and neuroscience. She draws on all three of these areas to study the ways in which human brains and computer models process language. And she joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Fish, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Signature Research Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of healthcare? Oh, well, uh, I mean, I hope AI will help us to expand healthcare and improve healthcare and uh, provide it to more people in more situations. But I also uh, want us to be cautious and use uh, use our power for good and realize that we're dealing with extremely private and personal data and uh, take that into account when we build our systems. Well, before we get into your research, um, I'd like to know a little bit more about you and, and how you got into uh, the areas that uh, you're researching right now. I understand that you actually started out in fine arts and uh, that your interest kind of morphed into neuroscience and computational linguistics and machine learning. So I guess I'm curious about your journey uh, from arts to artificial intelligence, if you can share a bit about that with sure. us. Yeah, that's a fun story. So I started um, in the Faculty of Arts with the ex, uh, sort of in expectation that I would go into design. But I took a, I had to take a science credit. So I took the sort of introduction to computing science for uh, my science credit. And it was the most fun of any homework that I had to do. Maybe second to studio art, because that was a lot of fun too. But I did really enjoy the computing science. And I used to bring my friends to the computer lab to come see my program. Like I built a tic-tac-toe program. So I made them all come and see my tic-tac-toe program <laughs> and play it. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh I just it just felt like it was more fun and uh, it seemed like a better career choice to end up in uh, something that was more fun and also possibly a little more practical than art. Uh, so I ended up switching to computing science uh, and was sort of like on my way to be your regular software developer. Um, and I had I was taking a lot of genetics classes in my uh, undergrad because I love genetics. and I thought it was really interesting. And I happened upon this book called Digital Biology that showed me that you could actually use computers to solve uh, problems in biology, which I had not even considered that I could combine my two areas of interest in order to, you know, sort of multiply the effect. So that was so cool. And I was so excited, but I didn't know that research was happening at the university. I, like, I didn't think anybody in Edmonton would be doing that uh, until I actually ended up interviewing for an internship uh, with the research group at the University of Alberta. And that is what they were doing. And it was like the most exciting interview that I felt completely unprepared for because I didn't realize that was what they were doing. Uh, but I did manage to get that inter internship. And then uh, that was sort of my introduction to research. So I did, I ended up doing that internship and then staying also to do my master's degree with that research group. 
And then after that, um, so that actually was my introduction to artificial intelligence at that point, um, learning how to teach computers how to understand biological sequences and understand what proteins did by looking at other proteins. That's so interesting. And it's, um, it, I think it's always fascinating when you can combine things that you don't think really go together. And then you kind of find that there is actually this great synergy when you mix them up. Um, I think that's super cool. I also wanted to ask you um, about your time uh, in industry, because I know that you moved to the States for a few years. You were at Google in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm kind of curious to know uh, about that experience and also why you came back to Edmonton and why you came back to academia. I moved to Pittsburgh to, to work for Google. I was actually like the 32nd engineer in the, the brand new Pittsburgh office, um, which happened to be on CMU campus, which for me was a big draw because it was sort of like I got to be a software developer, but I was still at university. <laughs> so I, I was sort of hesitant to leave university from the very beginning, but um, I, it was a neat uh, opportunity to be part of a, a new lab that had a strong focus on machine learning and also had strong ties to a university. Uh, so that seemed like a good fit to me. Um, I learned so much at Google about software development. Uh, I was surrounded because I was a, I was a totally junior engineer and I, because it was a very young office, they had hired a lot of senior people. So I was surrounded by people who really knew what they were doing. So I learned so much about writing code. I became like a hundred times the programmer I was when I started. Um, you know, it was a fantastic place to work. They treat their employees extremely well. Um, but I didn't feel like I saw a path forward for myself there where I could work on something that I found um, sort of motivating on its own. So at the time I was working on shopping, like their shopping app. Um, I do think that shopping online is woefully underpowered and it, it certainly could be much better, but that's not the sort of thing that, that keeps me up uh, or gets me thinking in the shower. Like the sorts of things that get me thinking in the shower are how we can uh, understand uh, biological systems, I guess, uh, sort of as a general theme. Um, so I felt like there wasn't really a way forward for me there. Like even I had looked into their Google Health and it, you know, it didn't seem like the right sort of application area for me. And so I, I looked into going back to school and I happened to be on CMU campus. Uh, so I applied there. Uh, I was surrounded by people who went to CMU. And I'm not sure if I had not, if I had not seen that the people around me who went to CMU were just regular folk. I'm not sure I would have applied there because it is one of the best graduate programs in the world for computing science and machine learning. Uh, so I applied and got in and was like overjoyed to be able to stay in Pittsburgh and also pursue my graduate career there. And then, yeah, so that's how I got back into academia. And then how I got back to Edmonton, I had always wanted to return to Canada. That was always the plan. And But I actually, uh, when I met my husband in Edmonton, I said to him, I'm going to be upfront with you. I am not staying in Edmonton. I'm getting out of here and I'm never coming back. <laughs> um, but after being away for a while and also I had a, a baby while we were away, um, it started to really make sense to be close to family again and also to be in a city where the cost of living and, and sort of the infrastructure was such that it was it was a little easier to be a family. So I was living in Victoria uh, after I finished my grad degree. I went and got a faculty position in Victoria. So it was nice to be back in Canada, but it was hard to be away from family and also the cost of living in Victoria, although it's not Vancouver, is still pretty expensive. Childcare was like a vicious war to try to find childcare. Like you had to be so aggressive. You had to be calling like all the time to try to like, I just happened into a like childcare spot. It seemed like, like everything was just a little bit harder than it needed to be. And so when I got uh, offered the chance to apply for a position here, I thought it was just a great sort of convergence of, uh, of uh, things. And also the university of Alberta, of course, is known for machine learning. And also there's a, you know, great funding here through CIFAR and then pan Canadian AI, AI strategy. 
uh, which meant that it would be easy to come here and, and sort of do my work uh, with a little less focus on having to go out and get money. That's a lovely story, kind of like a coming full circle, coming back home after having been away at the fabled Google environment and the storied Carnegie Mellon University and, and kind of coming back to uh, to Edmonton and, mm-hmm. and being part of the AI community here. That's lovely. And now my office is right next door to my old advisor's office. <laughs> so where I used to wait outside for my advisor's meetings, now my students wait outside for my, to talk to me. <laughs> so it really fantastic. is a full circle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk a bit more about your research. Um, one of the things that struck me, and, and tell me, um, you know, if this is uh, if this is mischaracterizing things in any way, but one of the things that struck me as I was looking at the body of work that you do, um, when I think about uh, areas where uh, machine learning is kind of making a lot of ad- advances, we talk a lot about natural language processing or NLP, but we also talk about computer vision and computer imaging. And I kind of feel like you're working at the intersection of these two really big areas when I take a look at the work that you're doing. How would you describe the work that you're doing? I guess my, my work is inspired by the idea that machines that do computation create representations that sort of feed into the computations they do. So a convolutional neural network takes as input pixels and produces as output a prediction about what is in the image that made up the pixels. And But on the way to do that, there are many different sort of intermediate steps, and each one of them produces a representation, which is just a list of numbers. And that list of numbers tells us something about what's in the image, but also what is happening to the information as it's moving from image to prediction. Um, And a similar thing happens in neural networks trained on language. So there's uh, multiple language models uh, built on neural networks, and they all have a similar sort of pattern that they have an input of some kind that represents the language that they're perceiving, you could say. And then they produce as outputs and prediction, but along the way, they produce a bunch of these representations and um, they tell us something about the input and the output uh, and how we get from one to the other. And the, the same thing is true in the human brain. There's some kind of input. It's either I'm hearing you talk or I'm seeing you smile. And that goes through my my percept- perception parts of my brains and then hooks up to the other parts of my brains. And along the way, there are representations that um, sort of serve the computation that I'm doing. So my work is really trying to find the connections between those representations across multiple sort of computational models, so including the brain. So I, some of my work has shown that uh, the representations that language models use that are built for the task of predicting context words, given uh, essential words. So if I tell you a word, I want, you, I want the model to predict what words it, it will likely see nearby. The representations that that model builds are similar to the representation that a CNN builds when it's trained to go from pixels to predict the object in the image. So if I show a cat to that CNN model, I look at its representations, that representation will be more similar to the network's representation to a dog than it would be to, for example, a car. And the same thing's true in the language model. The representation for cat is more similar to dog than it would be to car. So the representational spaces that these two completely different models, completely different systems cook up happen to sort of share these, these similarities. It understands that cats and dogs are more similar and, and that you know, holds across many, many different kinds of objects. So I think that's really interesting that there's something about the information that they're distilling that is captured and shared across the two systems. And so in retrospect, maybe it's not so surprising that those systems would show, show up with similar representations because, um, of course, they are trained. Language describes the world. It's about the world. People write it and people live in the world. Um, so, of course, the, the same sorts of sort of 
coherence patterns will show up that, that dogs and cats show up in, in language that is similar. And dogs and cats show up in images that are similar. But I still think it's really interesting that these representations, although they come from very different systems, sort of tell us uh, the same story about the world. Yeah. So before we kind of get into um, into that a bit more, maybe just um, taking a step back and breaking that down just a little bit more uh, for for myself and our listeners um, who aren't the computer scientists, um, just how, how exactly is that happening? Like what exactly is happening uh, in the model? Um, maybe starting with the computer model, what's happening um, when we're processing that information like a word and, and kind of understanding it? What What's going on there? The model I'm describing is called uh, word to vec and it's a very actually very simple neural network. It, it takes as input the identity of a word, and then it produces as output a probability distribution over the the near the what it expects to see nearby. So if I tell it cat, it might com- predict nearby, I don't know, fur and food and pet. I don't know so words like that, right? But if I tell it car, it will produce other things like drive and road and steering wheel or whatever. And so it. Uh, the neural network is trained to produce those predictions with you know, f- high accuracy. And along the way to producing those, those probability distributions over what it expects to see nearby, it produces what we call a hidden representation, which is just a list of numbers as an intermediate step. So it takes as input the word and then produces some hidden representation that represents something about the word. And then from that hidden representation, that intermediate step, it can produce the probability distribution. In, in truth, we don't really know how the model works. Then that is a whole area of um, research is trying to figure out how these models work, what they're doing. Because as we as we moved into this area of, of neural networks, we, we come up against this problem that these models are extremely complicated. And we don't often don't know what they're doing. We know that they work well and we know that um, that they work on a wide variety of problems, but we don't really understand how they work. Wow. And when it comes to our human brain, is it is it sort of a similar um, kind of a set of scenarios where we're, we're thinking about, you know, the cat and fur and, and the car as being associated with other things? Or, or what roughly is going on there? Again, yeah, we also don't know how the brain works <laughs> uh, to the degree that at least we would like it to. And I mean, there's been, a, I have to say, when I started studying the brain, I was actually really interested in to find out that there was uh, there had been a lot of progress in figuring out that there are parts of the brain that are that seem to be doing particular tasks. It's not always as cut and dry as we would like it to be. You know, our like our brain is not a bunch of Lego blocks that fit together, and one part does one thing and one part does another thing. It's it's it appears to me a more distributed process, but it is this process of there's some kind of input, and we're doing some kind of task, and along the way we produce uh, representations. And those representations are input to some next step in the process. And it, we can measure those representations with brain imaging. So we can see, uh, we don't know necessarily what your brain is doing, but we sort of know those intermediate stages. We can measure parts of the intermediate computations that you're doing along the way to produce whatever it is that your, your the final task is. So we have these two complicated systems that we don't know exactly how either one works. Um, but what you're seeing is some similarities in how the two of them are, are working just based on, on the research that you've done. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Like, how did you actually test for those similarities? How do you know that these things are, are these systems are working in similar ways? Yeah, so there's multiple ways to do it. Um, so one way is to train another model. <laughs> that takes as input, for example, the brain image um, and produces as output a prediction of uh, the hidden representation for a word. So uh, we, t- we show per- a person the word cat 
And then we train a model that can take the brain image of them reading the word cat and produce a prediction of the word vector. And it doesn't know, uh, it's seen a bunch of other word vectors before, but it's never seen the word vector for cat. And so it just produces a prediction based on, well, it's pretty much, it's kind of like a dog, but like maybe it's a little bit smaller and um, a little bit cuter, depending on who you ask. the brain has a representation that has a relationship to the neural network model for language. Uh, But another thing we can do is just look at the similarities. So the brain image for the word cat, is it more similar to the brain image for the word dog than it is for the word car and measure those, you know, those, those similarity numbers and then compare those similarity numbers to the hidden representations for the, from the word model for cat and dog and car. So sort of do the two, um, rep- what we call them representational spaces, do those two sort of sets of lists of numbers, do the distances between the lists of numbers sort of respect the distances in the other model. So like if cat and dog are close in one model, are they also close in the other model? Do their, are their lists of numbers similar across right. the models? I'm thinking how much easier this would be if if this weren't an audio only channel and we could actually draw this out. But I, I think, yeah, this idea of similarity or clustering of, of concepts that are, are kind of close to each other. Um, I'm curious to know, like, so what does this mean then? Um, so you found that there are maybe similarities in, in, in the processing uh, of the information from the computer model to the human brain. What, what do you draw from that or what does it actually mean? Well, so I think it means that um, the models we are building are, are on the right track, but it also is sort of an interesting coincidence because it's actually not a requirement for any model to create a representational space that's similar to any other model. That's not an explicit requirement. And so it, it just happens that for the task that we train these models to do and the input that we provide them, a representational space that is useful seems to be one that is um, related to the way the human brain represents information. So it's not a requirement, uh, but it's it's something that that comes out of the models. And uh, different people think that is more or less amazing. I'm in the group of people who think that's pretty amazing. <laughs> and why do you <laughs> so, think that? What what makes it amazing for you? Because there's no reason why they have to be the same, right? Like, uh, I, I think it's very clear that neural network models do not do the same computation that the human brain does. So when I when you are reading a word, you are not trying to predict the words that maybe are nearby, you, you know, like you're not, when I tell you the word cat, you're not producing a probability distribution over like context words. That's not what you're doing, doing something else. But one of the sort of intermediate steps along the path of whatever that is that you're doing when you understand a word, it creates a intermediate representation that's useful um, and also similar to this, this neural network model we have that produces con- predictions for context words. So these two, there's two systems, they're trained, if you can say the human brain is trained, trained on completely different data, and yet, and they're trained for completely different prediction problems, and yet they show up with similar representational spaces. I think, I think that that is interesting and worth further exploration. Yeah, no, it, it does sound really interesting. Maybe just kind of digging in a little bit more and, and throwing another thing in the mix. Um, so in humans, um, you know, we also we kind of kind of talk about emotions and and what um, how our emotional state kind of factors into um, how we think about things. Um, and clearly, that's not the same when it comes to computer models. So I'm wondering how you think about that. Um, is that something that um, we should consider? Um, have you thought about that in the context of your work? I'm just kind of curious about the role of emotions. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, of course, there there is emotion implied by some words. Um, and certainly when we move beyond just single words to um, full sentences or, or even full paragraphs, we can start to provoke emotion. Uh, so can models have an emotion? I would say no, but I think they could, they could predict the emotion uh, conveyed by a paragraph. Yeah, in particular, pursued that idea in uh, brain imaging, but I'm sure that there are... Um, relationships there. I guess I have worked on the sentiment. So whether a particular word or phrase is positive or negative, um, and there is at least some initial, uh, we have some initial results showing that that can also be uh, predicted from the brain image of people reading those same words. So kind of staying on this uh, trajectory a little bit more and maybe kind of projecting out a little bit further, um, we often talk about how artificial intelligence um, might become super intelligent um, and possibly outpace humans. Is there anything that we might be missing um, in terms of shaping our understanding or approach to AI along the lines of a human brain? Because it seems like we've kind of maybe constructed things a little bit in our image. Is that limiting in any way uh, for getting to this idea of super intelligence, um, assuming that we even agree that uh, super intelligence is possible or, or desirable in, in, in some way? So maybe I'll answer like a side question, which is, could we take expertise from the human brain and somehow impart it on neural networks? Like, is there a way to do that, that transfer? And the way that we have tried to do that so far is by providing networks with input and output. So here are a bunch of images. I want you to tell me what's in the images. That's what the network is trained to do, but we don't tell the network how to do it. And so one of my research questions is, could we help the network learn how to do something by providing it with, um, brain images of a person doing the same thing. This has been shown to work for very simple models of language and some very simple computer vision models that if we sort of provide the represent a, a window into the representational space that people have in their brains for either words or images, um, can those representational spaces help to guide a neural network as it learns? and improve its learning. Either maybe it learns faster and then maybe it ends up with a model that's more precise. Uh, is there a way to sort of like hook those two things together? And then, and so we've shown actually that that is possible for some very simple tasks. And now that the next question is, let's say we have a person with a particular expertise. Um, is there a way to take that expertise and put it into the system in a way that's even better than if you had somebody without the expertise? So it's not really, I'm, I'm not really, I don't think that this is probably the way to make machines super uh, intelligent, but I do think it's a way to um, sort of bridge that gap. We've only been telling them input and output, but there's something in between and how can we get them there without necessarily understanding what they're doing. So like the problem is we don't know what the human brain's doing. We don't know what neural networks are doing. How are we going to make one better by understanding the other? Well, actually that's, um, that's, a, that's a false barrier. We don't actually have to understand how they're working if we have a way to sort of hook these representational spaces up to each other. So is this sort of like mimicry? Um, I, I'm just thinking as you're kind of um, explaining this, I'm just thinking about uh, teaching a child or, or training a pet and we kind of model our actions. We model what needs to be done or what we want done. Is, is it akin to that or how are you imagining this um, process that you're describing to, to be taking place? Yeah, sure. So if you had like... Uh, let's say we had a physical action that took many steps. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's like uh, baking bread. So like 
what we're currently doing is giving the machine all of the ingredients for bread and then sh- and then finished bread. And we're like, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> See you in an hour. <laughs> and and that's not really reasonable, right? But showing them the intermediate stages of like, you know, the first the first stage is that the flour and the baking soda and the whatever all goes to cinnamon, all goes together for making banana bread. And we mash the eggs and the bananas in another bowl. That's like an intermediate representation. And then the next step is blah, blah, blah. And then we cook it. And like, look, if we showed them some of those steps, then it would be much easier easier. Um, and so a way to show the intermediate steps without really understanding how the, the model should work is by, you know, taking brain images of a person doing a similar task and saying, you should, you should be doing something like this. So try to do this thing, whatever this is, try to create a, an intermediate representation that looks like this. Yeah, you know, when you explain this banana bread analogy, um, it really actually sounds kind of crazy how we're currently doing things. Like I just go, okay, we're going to give them all the ingredients and we have the finished loaf and the rest of it is up to you. Yeah. And we'll give Um, them many examples like, and here's a stir fry. (laughs) Here's here's what I'm looking for. You know, like it does kind of seem lunacy, like lunacy in it, but it works, which is also kind of crazy that it, it actually does work. Yeah, no, it is kind of crazy. Let's uh, let's talk about healthcare a little bit and uh, and uh, the work that you're doing. So, healthcare is an area where AI models are increasingly being used. Um, just given your research, what are some of the challenges and what are some of the opportunities that you see with this type of technology um, as it applies to healthcare? Yeah, so in the context of my research, I think uh, brain imaging for um, to better understand neurological disorders, I think is really interesting. And uh, my colleague, Russ Greiner, who I don't know if you've interviewed him yet, but you should if you haven't, uh, does work on that. And in particular, trying to take brain images of people. He has an interesting study where they took brain images of people who had never been on an antidepressant, but had been sort of diagnosed as having depression and then given an antidepressant. And then they take some brain images early on in the treatment. And then also as the treatment progresses, because you probably know the problem with antidepressants is that you it's very hard to know if they're working early on it takes a long time so if you need to you know if it takes you four antidepressants to find one that works for you that can be a year right that can be a year of trial and error which is you know unfortunate for people who have depression but if we could take a if we could tell using a brain image earlier to see that the antidepressant either is or is not working that could be really useful so it's a lot of it about kind of speeding up the process or making it uh, more manageable to um, to kind of get to a treatment protocol or something of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's my that I think that's a, a lot of the ways that we see how it could improve uh, healthcare. But I think we should also consider that there are places in the world where um, seeing a doctor is is something that doesn't happen very often because doctors don't visit very often. Um, and if we could have a way to sort of provide a base level of healthcare to people without them necessarily having to see a doctor or see a doctor for less time, uh, that could greatly improve uh, the efficiency of the system and allow us to, you know, provide treatment for more people. So kind of like there's this idea of speeding up, but there's also this idea of democratizing and kind of like giving access to more people more efficiently um, and kind of distributing healthcare a little bit more widely, perhaps through the use of technology. One thing, kind of coming back to a comment that you made earlier about this idea of explainability, um, and when I think about healthcare as being such a high stakes domain, you know, having agency in terms of our care and being able to really understand what's going on becomes incredibly important. 
So when you think about explainability, um, first of all, there's this kind of discussion that happens around uh, this topic about accuracy versus explainability. So more accurate models tend to be these uh, deep neural nets that are less explainable and more explainable models are perhaps not as accurate. Where do you stand on that whole debate? Like, it is, again, a, a false barrier that we need to understand the model in order to under, like, understand how the weights fit together and this representation feeds into the representation. But what we could do is train a model <laughs> to explain the model, which I thought was an excellent idea. I think there's some barriers there for um, getting the right training data. But if for a, a particular prediction you had uh, alongside it a natural language explanation of why it was making the prediction, then that's when you could train both a model to make the prediction as well as a side model that could sort of peer into the neural network and explain why. Like, what are the features that made you think that this was the right prediction to make? Is it is it necessary to understand the system to explain the system? I don't know. Maybe not. Interesting. So we, ha we have an explainer model that would help us uh, in these contexts. And like, um, we kind of are explainer models, right? Like we, like, what do you do when you try to explain to somebody why you made a particular decision? Like you, like a lot of times it, it's like a gut instinct and it's hard to explain. And so like, it, there's sort of this like false sense that when we explain a decision we made, we, we really understand why we made the decision. Sometimes that's true. Like I chose chicken for lunch because I, it's the leftovers that are available at this moment, right? Like, but not... There are other decisions that we make, especially I'm sure in healthcare, that there's a lot of things that are going into it. And it's a little hard to sort of trace back to why you're making the decision. Yeah. I'm just kind of imagining like what, what would be the criteria that would go into a really good explainer model? You know, I think a lot about audiences um, as a communicator and, and maybe part of it is who are you explaining it to and what do they need to know? So an explanation for a doctor might be different than an explanation for a patient. Yeah. And I, I think when, with healthcare in particular, just having some kind of explanation becomes a critical component, <laughs> some kind of understandable explanation. Um, we don't always understand yeah. doctors um, for that matter. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I should say Rich Karana is a, a fabulous researcher who's done some really wonderful work in medicine and AI. And he has in particular shown that um, when you understand a model, you can find problems in the data. For example, like um, if for some reason one particular patient record is repeated a hundred times in a huge database, you may never know that. And so, but it would completely change the predictions you're making because it would weight everything towards that particular person's like medical condition and outcome, right? And so being able to understand our models and dig down deeper into the data that, that built them is really important when, we, when those models are producing predictions that have that kind of impact on people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just kind of on that note, I mean, how do you kind of grapple with that in the context of your own research? And how do you know that things are going as according to plan? Or if something is flawed, how do you how do you do that double check? Yeah, so that's really important. And that's a skill I, I try to teach my students is that um, before you run an experiment, you should have an expectation of what the outcome will be. We're not just running experiments just for fun on the weekends, we are running experiments with an expectation, with a question in mind and an expectation for what the answer will be. If the like, output does not match our expectation, that can be good uh, or it can be the, a bug and we need to understand why things are working in a particular way. And pushing students towards continuing to ask why, 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 like I have a student right now who's working on a problem and you know the accuracy works really well in one, one situation and really poorly in another. And, to me, it doesn't make sense. Why? Why would it be better in one than the other? Well, 
you know, answering that question is more important than having a model that has high accuracy. You know, a model with high accuracy is, it could be a, a bug in the software code, right? And nobody's interested in that. And so the, the high accuracy without the why um, is kind of useless. But I think the why can come from multiple places. Um, and a lot of the times things we'll do with our data is, uh, with our systems is ablate part of the system. So like we built this very complicated system and if we take something out, does it work better or worse? What's our expectation of how the, how the model would work differently if we changed a particular thing? just to make sure that we understand some of the dynamics that are going on behind the scenes. Well, I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, the humans uh, involved in your research um, as we kind of segue from the technology. Um, one of the themes that we're exploring on the show is this idea of interdisciplinary teams and having computer scientists and medical professionals and others from maybe the social sciences come together and, and work together. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your team. So my team is uh, largely computing science people, uh, people with computing science backgrounds, but I do have a student in psychology. And I also have a, a postdoc whose background is speech pathology. So finding a way to talk together, I think, is like an important skill. It's something we work on. Uh, but I think it's, you know, public communication is a real passion of mine and figuring out how to explain your research in a way that is understandable, not just to your peers, but also people from different disciplines and also just to just to your family, I think is important and uh, worthwhile. Do you find that having that arts background or, or at least appreciation um, early on helps at all in bridging the gap between different disciplines? Yeah, so people are like ex surprised that I moved from art into computing science, but I actually see a lot of similarities. So art it is rarely a straight line between idea and final product. Like there's always things that change, things aren't quite working the way you want them to do too. And, you know, you have to make compensations here and there. Um, it's really a debugging process. It's really a like, I, this is not what I wanted. I was moving towards this thing and I'm now it's going in a different direction. And like, how can I, you know, either change the goal or change what I'm doing to get me where I want to go. But, I mean, computing science is extremely creative because you have really complicated problems. And you have to think of smart ways to solve them. And also debugging it requires a creative mind and a, an analytical mind. And I actually think there's a lot of commonalities. I don't necessarily think it's completely devoid of creativity. Yeah, not as far apart, perhaps, as, as one might think initially. Um, I want to talk a bit about um, women in, in STEM and computer science in AI. Um, I've seen statistics that range anywhere from a low of 13% to maybe a high of 20% uh, women working in AI. What's it been like for you um, as a woman working in this field? How have you experienced um, being being part of the AI community as a female? Uh, it's gotten better as I've progressed. And I, I don't think it's necessarily better for junior people, but just as you sort of get your feet under you and learn where your strengths are, it's a little bit easier to sort of garner the respect that you have always deserved. Uh, I mean, I've definitely had experiences where people, I felt like I had to prove myself when I got somewhere. But one thing I think is important and useful is uh, to realize that I think the places in computing science and AI that attract women are the places where there is this uh, interdisciplinarity. There's a people working together on a problem that isn't just a computer problem. It's a problem that affects the real world. I, and that's what I've seen. I've seen that women are attracted to these areas where the computer is not just being a computer by itself in a room, it's, it's doing something. So for example, in computational linguistics and natural language processing, those, those conferences have a lot more women. It's not 50-50, but it's more, I would say it's probably more than 20%. And when you move into other areas where we have you know, these interdisciplinary uh, situations, we start to see more women being involved. And I think 
knowing that you can do more with a computer uh, and thinking about the places where computers can have a real impact uh, tends to uh, attract a more diverse audience. And um, so I think trying to get out there and spread the word about the fact that like, really, you can do anything with a computer. You can study, you can fit, you can study anything with a computer. Now you can improve any area of science by using a computer and machine learning. I, I think that there are a lot of opportunities out there and there's a lot of opportunities to engage people who have interests, you know, outside of computers in particular. Do you think that's the key for encouraging more women or more people with diverse backgrounds to um, be part of this field in, in some way is just kind of showing them those possibilities? Or what, what do you think would be the key to kind of moving the needle on, um, on being more inclusive in terms of who participates in this area? That was the sort of the point for me that really got my fire burning was when I found that book, that digital biology book. And I saw I could do more than just the things we were doing in our classes with computers. I could actually understand another problem using computers. Um, so I think if we integrated some of those lessons earlier into the, the curriculum, we might be able to show people that uh, computers can be used to do all kinds of stuff. Are you interested in music? Computers can be used to you know, create music now uh, and understand music and predict things about music. And are you interested in art? Well, you know, computers can be used in all kinds of ways to predict things about um, which paintings are beautiful and try to understand why people find things attractive or not attractive. And yeah, I think there's, there's lots of opportunities. I mean, the digital humanities has showed us so many ways in which we can expand what we thought we could do with computers by, by talking to people from other fields. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about all of this. So I feel it's, it's touching on pretty much every area. And so no matter where your interests lie, there's going to be some intersection point um, that makes some of this work useful or interesting. Um, and, and that what I find that really fascinating as we kind of progress forward with all of this technology. We're wrapping up our time here. I, I just wanted to ask you, what's next for you? Um, what are some of the things that you're working on? Where are you taking your research? Uh, where are things going uh, with you? Sure. I, so I touched on one, which was expertise. So can we can we somehow impart human expertise into models using brain imaging? But I'm also interested, so we talked about how the human brain has representations that are similar to like these neural network models of language. So I'm when I say that, I think you and I are both assuming I'm talking about neurotypical adults who are fluent in the language. But I think you can, taking each one of those out leads to interesting questions. So if people are not fluent in the language, if they're just learning the language, what do the representations look like? And when do they appear? And how strong are they? I have some work on that. When we take out the adults, so if people are not adults, what, they have a sort of a more naive language system, they've had less exposure to language, they understand fewer words, what does their language system look like? And how could we uh, compare those to models? Is there a better way to build a model that looks more like a, an infant's uh, representational space for language meaning? And we can also take out the neurotypical. So if we talk about people with, uh, my, my postdoc is interested in people with autism. So if people have autism, they understand the world in a different way. Um, how does that impact their representational space? Is there, are there consistent and systematic differences in how you understand the world if you have autism? So I think sort of like just sort of modulating along each one of those dimensions is a way that I think there's lots of interesting science questions that come up. That is really interesting. I don't know why, but I'm going back to that banana bread thing and, and have this image of you like replacing, you know, the chocolate chips with cranberries or some other thing, <laughs> <laughs> trying different mixes, if you will. Um, is there anything, we've covered a lot of ground, I feel like we've talked about a lot of things, but is there anything else that uh, you wanted to share or you wish I'd asked you about? I'll give you the last word. Uh, one of my big concerns and something I bring up every time I teach machine learning is that machine learning has 
a huge impact on society and it impacts different people with different backgrounds in different ways. And we need to think about that uh, when we build systems. So when I teach undergraduate students how to do machine learning, I also talk to them about what machine learning, uh, the effects of machine learning models out in the real world, how they've already had impacts on people and how we might think about how they could have future impacts. And all of my students do a project as part of the, the class and part of Part of the final re the report they produce is they have to tell me how what they built could it have a negative impact if it was sort of used in the wrong way or um, something like that. And I think that's it's important to continue to think about uh, the fact that uh, machine learning is not just uh, something we do inside computers. It has now expanded out and impacts the real world. That's wonderful. As someone who works in the area of AI and ethics, that's music to my ears. So thank you for doing that. Dr. Fish, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. Thanks for the invitation. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.